Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 is where we are today. If you are with us for the first time today, it's an unusual Sunday. We are uh, in the middle of uh, just a two-part series looking at the entire Bible. We have a real habit here, and in fact, it's a, it's a real conviction that most of our preaching, in fact, a vast majority of it should be just working through books of the Bible. And we call that expositional preaching, where we take uh, a, a book or a passage and we make the point of the sermon the point of the biblical text that we're looking at. And that's what we do a vast majority of the time. So we spent uh, about... Uh, 30-something Sundays working through 1 Corinthians. Next Sunday, we're going to start our series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. But for these past few Sundays, we've been just kind of stepping back and getting sort of a bird's-eye view, a 30,000-foot view of the entire Bible. Last week, we looked at the message of the Old Testament, all 39 books. And this Sunday, we're going to look at the message of the New Testament, all 27 books. And so I hope it will, although it's kind of an unusual message for what we usually do here at Crosspoint. I hope it's a helpful, profitable time for you to get sort of a panoramic view of the message of the scriptures, and I hope it will encourage you if you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian yet, I'm very glad that you are here today. Uh, we want to be sensitive to your spiritual state, but more than that, we want to make much of God and his work on the cross in Jesus, and we think that the best thing, the best way we can serve you is not to water it down or make it focus kind of on you, but the best way we can serve you is to just show you how great and wonderful and glorious God is as he reveals himself to us in scripture. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to be all over the map. Generally, we work through a passage of scripture. Today, we're going to be, as I said, all over the New Testament. All the notes that we're going to have on the screen will be on the internet on our website by tomorrow afternoon. And so if you're not a fast note taker, don't feel the pressure to scribble things down. Um, And also, all the passages that I read are going to be up on the screen as well. And so uh, you don't necessarily need to feel the pressure to flip, although that's a great way to learn your Bible, by actually opening it up and flipping through and reading the text yourself. In fact, today we're going to start in Hebrews just as a sort of launching pad for the rest of the message. And if you're using one of the chair Bibles that's in the rack in the chair in front of you, that's on page 709, Hebrews chapter 1, which is just going to be sort of our launching pad into the whole sermon. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible. We'd love for you to take it home and use it and read it and, um, and, and grow as you read the Word with us. Well, two things before we get into this. I want to let you know that there were two babies born at Crosspoint this week. The Lecks, John and Lindsay Leck, had their third baby boy, James Robert Leck. I think they're calling him Jabo, and he's just as cute as his two older brothers, which is just impossibly cute. And then also uh, Springer and Laura Susan Kane had their first baby boy, Matthew Springer Kane. And he is just glorious. What a handsome little guy. He, uh, I saw uh, on Facebook or somewhere the other day that Springer already had him in some Georgia apparel for the game. Yesterday didn't help much. But anyway, um, Matthew was sporting his gear. And as you know, we prayed for the Canes for several years for uh, a blessing of a baby, and the Lord answered their prayer, and so we're just very grateful for those two baby boys. Also, one more thing, uh, our team, our Central Asia missions team, I won't mention the country or the missionaries that they are 
uh, laboring with out of respect for the missionaries who've asked us not to put anything on the internet mentioning their names of the country. But if you've been around Crosspoint, you know that we have a team that left, eight people that left to a Central Asian country uh, this Friday. They arrived safely, and uh, I think today they are getting to work on that Christian retreat, doing some, uh, some refurbishing of that to help Christian missionaries in that part of the world. And so do be in prayer for them. They will be working there all week and will be returning uh, next Monday, September 12th. There's eight folks from Crosspoint. Craig Andrews is leading that team, and uh, they're off and working, and I'm sure adjusting to the time change. Well, let's do this. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us today. This is a huge task. Uh, it, last week we looked at the whole Old, whole Old Testament, today the whole New Testament. And I, I want this to be more than just kind of an academic look. I want it to be, although it might feel a little bit more kind of classroomish than our usual sermons, I want it to stir our affections for Jesus. Ultimately, that's our, our goal when we gather. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us with that. Lord, thank you for these friends uh, that are with us this morning. Thank you for brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you for just the privilege to gather together as Christians. Thank you for friends that may be here today that do not know you yet. I do pray, Lord, that today you, by your irresistible grace, by the kindness of your Holy Spirit, you would move upon their hearts and cause them to see Jesus so that they would pass from death to life. Lord, that's our only hope, is trusting in Jesus. And so, Lord, today as we look at the message of the New Testament, which centers on Jesus and his work, I do pray, God, that you would, that you, as we just mentioned a moment ago, that you would stir our hearts with passion for Jesus so that our lives would make much of you, so that you would receive much glory, which is the end for which everything was created, your glory. And Lord, I pray for my friends that don't know you, that today in your sovereign grace you might see fit to draw them to you so that they can make much of you as well. And Lord, as we come around the table today to receive communion as a church family, I do pray that you would give us a sense of gladness and gravity as we think about and remember what Jesus did for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get going and before I read Hebrews 1, let me just mention also that it is the first Sunday of the month. It's our custom to receive communion together as a church family. Our custom here at Crosspoint is to open this up for all Christians, whether or not you are a member of this church or not. Uh, an unusual thing this Sunday is that we will have some children in with us today that are usually an elementary age kids' church. And so we believe that communion is for professing Christians. And so uh, parents, uh, we, we leave that today in particular to your discernment to, to decide whether or not your child is, has professed faith in Jesus and is ready to receive communion with you. If they haven't, that's fine. They're welcome to just come with you and just kind of go through the motions, go through the line. But uh, communion is for people who have believed in Jesus. And so uh, we will do that together as a family in just a moment after this sermon. Well, Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Let me read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1 as a sort of launching point for our look at the entire New Testament today. The writer of Hebrews writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That, we could just sort of stop there and say that's the that's sort of shorthand for the Old Testament. God spoke through these men 
who wrote these books that we now know of as the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, this verse kind of serves as a launching point to tell us that in this old covenant, years ago, God spoke through these men, and it was the Old Testament, but now he's spoken to us through his Son, and has given us this word, this living and abiding word, which we know now completes the Bible as the New Testament. Today I'm going to hang my thoughts on sort of three words. And um, I usually kind of make fun of sermons that are alliterated. These three points all start with C, and it just kind of happened that way. I'm sorry, don't mock me. I know I'm a hypocrite, which that, that's okay, I admit it. But here's the three words. We're going to kind of hang our outline on these three words. These three words are Christ, the Christ of the New Testament, the Christ of the Bible, the Christ... Jesus, the Son of God, the church that we see in the New Testament, the people of God, and then thirdly, the consummation of all things, when the final and full glory of God is realized in the end, which is really actually just the beginning. Well, let's look at, at the Christ of, of the New Testament. If you uh, Last week, I had you flip to the, uh, to the table of contents. And um, you maybe can do that. That might be profitable. If you just, how often in church do you actually flip to the, to the table of contents? So if you look at the New Testament, uh, in your table of contents, you know that the New Testament is made up of 27 books. All right? And the first four, I think most of us are familiar with, the first four books of the New Testament are, are, are the four Gospels. And Gospel is a word that literally means the good news, the proclamation of the good news, which, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But there's, there's four Gospels, and there's a reason there are four Gospels. Those, four, those aren't four different Gospels. Those are all the Gospel of Jesus through the lens of four different men. And so first you have Matthew, which is primarily written to a Jewish audience. The Gospel of Matthew is written by a Jew, written with a particular interest, interest to, to link Old Testament prophecy to the coming of Jesus in his life. And so Matthew is, is very concerned to show the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Next, you have Mark, which is a gospel written to primarily Christians that were in Rome at that time. And its, its large emphasis is the kingdom of God and the power of Jesus. It's written to a people that are kind of under the thumb of a military uh, a culture, and so Mark has a particular interest, interest to show the power of the kingdom of God and Jesus' inbreaking into this world. By the way, it's also the shortest gospel, and most scholars think that, that it was probably the first gospel, and it was used by the other gospel writers as a sort of base document. Next, you have the gospel of Luke, which was written by the physician Luke, who was a ministry associate of Paul. It, it, it gives us more detailed view of God's plan. It's written by this scientist, and so it, it's more concerned with details. It's written with uh, maybe a little bit more precision and, and uh, an eye towards skeptics that, uh, that 
that Luke gives us. And so he was a skeptic in a sense himself, and he wrote for, uh, for that type of mindset. And it's the longest gospel. And then finally we have John, who was written by John, Jesus' uh, disciple. And it's a little bit different than the first three gospels. Sometimes we call the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels which is just a word that means that they see together. So there's a kind of a lot of unity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with maybe Mark being sort of the base document there. But John, it doesn't flow with Matthew, Mark, and Luke quite, uh, quite as closely as the others. It's, it's John's perspective that is concerned more with the nature of Jesus and his deity and his humanity and pointing us towards eternal life. And it's written in particular very likely for a Greek sort of mindset, the Hellenistic world at the time. And so you see each of these four Gospels don't contradict each other. They actually complement each other. And in God's kindness, he gives us these four sort of pictures of the life of Jesus through the lens of four different men. So that's the, the Gospels of Christ in the New Testament. The New Testament in particular regarding Jesus is concerned with who he is, who Jesus is. And the first thing that, that is very important for us to understand as we're coming to the New Testament is to understand that this Jesus, who is the central figure, who is the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament. Remember, last week we left off at the Old Testament, seeing that the Old Testament is promising a salvation, a Messiah, outside of itself. And so all of these Old Testament leaders and figures, Moses and Abraham before him, and then David and the prophets were all sort of uh, prefigures, imperfect prefigures of this coming Savior, Jesus the Messiah, a Messiah outside of themselves, coming from them, but he's, he's outside of the Old Testament. He's coming, and Jesus becomes the promise kept of the promise made of the Old Testament, and it's particularly concerned with, especially the Gospels and the New Testament, describing to us the nature of Jesus. And very briefly, we could spend months on just this particular point, but very briefly, the nature of Jesus is that he is fully God and fully man. He is completely God and completely man. We could, as I said, say much more about that, but let me just answer two brief questions about why his humanity is necessary, why Jesus, why the New Testament is so concerned with showing us and telling us that Jesus is completely man. Well, uh, first is, is so that he can fully represent us. Remember the Old Testament establishes this problem that there's sin, there's, there's transgression, there is rebellion against God and he gives us this law to shed light on this sin and as we talked about last week to sort of produce in us a futility that we know that we can't, we can never in and of ourselves, we can never fulfill God's law. And so the New Testament now is particularly interested in showing us how Jesus fulfills that law in us, but or fulfills that law for us, but he's not a sort of alien to the human race. He actually is fully human himself, and he becomes a full human representative. And so re- let me read Romans chapter 5, verse 18. We'll have it on the screen. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for all men. That's meaning Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so you have these sort of dual heads of humanity. You have Adam who represented us with his sin and he was human. 
And you have Jesus, who is fully man, who represents us with his righteousness and his obedience. And so Jesus can completely represent us because he is fully human. And he becomes then our substitute. This is what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, a real important uh, verse on Jesus' nature. Let me read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. We'll talk about that word more uh, deeply in just a moment. But propitiation literally means to satisfy the justice of God by his sacrifice and turn that justice and wrath of God into favor to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the, we could go on and on on this, but just those two verses give us a picture of the necessity of the humanity of Jesus so that he can completely identify with us and so that he becomes a real human substitute for us, a perfect human substitute, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Why was this deity necessary for us? Why is it necessary for God to be fully man and then also fully God? Well, only God, if we just think about this, again, we could, we could spend hours just thinking about this one particular aspect of Jesus' nature. But if you think about why Jesus' deity is necessary, is that only God could bear the weight of all the sin of all of his people. Look, there have been some good men and some good leaders. There have been some people that have been good servant leaders and, and, and laid down their lives. But really, any sinful substitute ultimately is lacking. And Jesus is perfect, not only in his humanity, but he's completely God. And so God himself actually bears the weight of the sin that is so clearly identified in the Old Testament and the New. And only God could mediate between himself and mankind. And so that's what the Bible says about Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. They said there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so... Briefly there, we see that it's very necessary for Jesus to be fully man and fully God. That's who he is. It's his nature. He's fully God, fully man. And then the New Testament's very concerned with, with outlining for us and teaching us what Jesus did. There's a couple aspects I want to look at about what Jesus did, his actual work. Well, first of all, he, he taught. He taught. That's what he did. He enters the scene, and he lives this perfect life, and he begins a teaching ministry. Mark chapter 1 Verse 15 says that Jesus began his public ministry with these words that the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. And then the rest of the gospels are full of Jesus' teaching. We see primarily Jesus' teaching laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. But all through the gospels, we see Jesus' teaching. But it's important to see that the beginning of his teaching isn't, I've come now to give you sort of a better way, a sort of more uh, souped up moral code, a sort of improvement to the Old Testament law. No, he comes to first tell us to turn from trust in self and trust in the good news, which he will elaborate on. And so the, the, the core of Jesus' teaching is not be better. The core of Jesus' teaching is turn from trusting in yourself and put all of your trust in the one who is better for you. And so even in all of his beautiful teachings on ethics and morality, the point of Jesus' teaching is not to be a better person. 
It's to trust in Him. And so Jesus teaches. He explains the law. Secondly, what Jesus did, which is very significant, which the New Testament is very concerned about showing, is that He actually fulfilled the law. The law, the Old Testament law, wasn't just, oh, well, God sort of started over because things weren't working out. Jesus actually, in His perfection, fulfills the law. Let me read to you Romans chapter 8, verse verse, uh, 3 and 4. It says in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, remember that Old Testament Mosaic law that we talked about last week, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember we talked about how the law could never bring righteousness? All it could do was shine light on our sin. God has done what the law could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so what's happening in that verse is it's showing us, it's telling us that Jesus was perfect. He he didn't just sort of erase the law. He didn't abolish the law. He says in the Sermon on the Mount that he fulfills the law. And so the law has been satisfied, not by you and me or not by some devout Jew in, in Israel. The law has been satisfied and fulfilled and perfectly lived out in Jesus. And so one of the things that the four Gospels are very concerned about showing us is that Jesus wasn't just sort of God that came down and just sort of zapped us with with grace, but that he actually submits his life under this law and lives it, executes it, fulfills it perfectly. And what he's doing there is he's satisfying the requirements of the law that then when he lays down his life on the cross and resurrects in victory over death and sin, then he gives us his character, which is a perfect, law-fulfilling, righteous character. So the New Testament is very concerned about showing us that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Thirdly, what he did, obviously, his death, that Jesus actually died as a substitute for the sin of God's people. Go to Romans chapter 3. This would be an important verse for you to to turn to. This is maybe the center of the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, I believe he said that this right here was the, I can't remember the word he used, the fulcrum or the pivot point. It's the, the apex, the center of the message of the New Testament. Maybe the message of the whole Bible, how God has brought glory to himself, has satisfied his righteousness through Jesus' work on the cross, his death. And so, in Romans uh, chapters 1 and 2, Paul is very concerned with showing how all of us, whether we're Jews or Gentile, we have all failed. Jews have failed to live up to the law. Gentiles have failed to live up to the the law that God has written on our hearts. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul, in in a sort of sweep of all humanity, just indicts us all and calls us all guilty. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law. And really, in a sense, all people are under the law, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. We're all under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So all of us are guilty, right? There's nobody that is born innocent or not guilty. We are all, this is very, to understand Christianity, to understand the message of the Bible, You must get this. We are all born sort of rebellious sinners 
that have this nature that we have inherited from our first father, Adam, and that we have willfully chosen to walk in. And so as a result, we are all accountable. For by faith, verse 20, or for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this Old Testament law, uh, it, 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 justification doesn't come through that. Then in verse 21, these two beautiful words that now zoom us into the work of Christ on the cross. It says, but now, and th- these next few verses are really the center of the New Testament. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there's this, there's this righteousness, there's this right standing with God that is now coming apart from this Old Testament law. Now these law and prophets of the Old Testament pointed to it, called for it, showed the need for it, but this Old Testament law could never fully bring about this righteousness that is necessary to stand before the creator of all things. And now what Paul is saying here is that this righteousness has been revealed apart from this law. And we'll go on to read here in just a moment that it's Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so Jesus, trusting in him for all who believe in Jesus, now have right standing with God through faith in what Jesus has done. For there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus alone, just Christ alone is how we're saved. It's not maybe through a little bit of law um, fulfilling and a little bit of good works and a little bit of morality. We are saved, we are justified, which is a word that means we are made right before God simply by His grace. It's a gift through and only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, listen to this now. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so listen, here's what's happening is the Old Testament law is calling for a sacrifice. It's calling for justice. We have sinned. We have rebelled against God. And the law is calling for justice. But the problem is we're in a predicament is that we can't, we can't supply what the law calls for. We can't uphold it, all right? And by the way, sin, this is important for us to recognize as well. This is a major theme of the New Testament. People may think because we live in sort of this Pollyanna, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, everything, everything's okay. Let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. We're not that bad. I'm okay, you're okay. No, we're actually not okay. We're, we're, we're rebellious sinners. And we tend to, in our culture, really minimize the seriousness of sin, right? Well, the reason we do that is because we don't understand the holiness of the one whom we are sinning against. Do you realize that, that sin, gets its, sin gets its weight and it's, it's, it's uh, really its devastating consequences and its seriousness, not by how it affects us here on this plane, but by the holiness of the one against whom it has transgressed. So let me give you just a, I think I've given you this uh, analogy before, but uh, if, let's say, um, I was walking down the street in Washington, D.C., 
and um, I just saw a person I had never met before, and I just decided, just had a wild hair, I'm going to just go tackle him. I'm just going to go get my hips low, I'm going to get my face mask up, and I'm just going to go, boom, I'm just going to stick him as football season, I'm going to tackle him. And then I get up, yeah! That would be terrible. I mean, I might even get arrested for that. I mean, like, what's, what's this guy doing? Just get up and walk off. People might, I mean, the guy might swing back at me or something. But now, if President Obama was walking outside of the White House, or if he was giving a speech somewhere in Washington, D.C., and I somehow broke through the barricade, and I just lowered my shoulder, boom, yeah, and I tackled the President of the United States, well, can we agree that the consequences for tackling the President of the United States would probably be higher than tackling just some cat on the street, right? Well, that's an imperfect analogy, but we clearly understand that the weight of the sin is gauged by the one against whom, the value, the worth, the office of the one against whom you are sinning, right? And so, so, so the Old Testament is calling for justice, not because God just wants to beat us up, but because his, the whole story of the universe is the holiness and the grandeur and the greatness and the purity and the righteousness and the glory of God, right? Unless you read the Bible with a very God-centered focus rather than a self and man-centered focus, you lose this major theme of the, of the Christian message in the Bible that, that everything is about God. Jonathan Edwards, the great American pastor and theologian, says that the glory of God, the greatness of God, is the end for which all things are created. And so, so our sin here in verse 23, verse 25, needs this holy, perfect God-man to satisfy its call for justice. And that's what God does. God puts forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, Jesus, this perfect God-man. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what this verse is saying is, is that God hasn't just said, ah, you know, well, let's forget about the Old Testament. Let's forget about all those things I've, I've required of humanity. What he's saying is, is that God in his mercy and kindness is still holy and still just. And this, this letter by Paul is very concerned with showing how God can still be holy and just and let any of us into heaven because none of us are. And the way that he does that, this verse clearly tells us, is by actually pouring out his judgment on Jesus on the cross, who becomes a satisfactory, full substitute for our sins. And so Jesus' perfect life, then his voluntary laying down of his perfect life on the cross, becomes the answer to the requirement of sin and God's holiness holiness in the Old Testament. Friends, those five verses are the center. They're at the very core of the message of Christianity. God is holy and just. We are not. There is a gap between God and humanity which we cannot make up and God makes up himself by pouring out his justice on his son on the cross who fully satisfies the justice and holiness and wrath of God because of his perfection. Friends, that's what that verse is saying and that is what Jesus has done on the cross. Don Carson, a great New Testament scholar, writes this about that verse. He says, There is no solution to the threat of God's righteous wrath upon his creatures who have rebelled against him. So let that sort of sink. Let that sit on you. There is no solution. Church attendance, 
good works, giving, morality. There is no solution to the threat of God's righteous wrath upon his creatures who have rebelled against him, which is all of us, until the person of his son, God himself, bears the wrath we deserve, preserving his justice while justifying us. That's, that's the heart of Christianity right there. That God put forward Jesus to satisfy his justice while also justifying us. And then also the New Testament is very concerned next with Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus didn't just die as, as important and as glorious as that is. The New Testament is very concerned with showing that Jesus got up from that grave. He defeated death and sin and all of its consequences. And for the past few uh, uh, months, we've been dwelling on this letter of 1 Corinthians. And a few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection hope of Jesus. And his resurrection, again, is just the power, the central theme of the New Testament, that Jesus has defeated death and sin on the cross. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Jesus didn't actually come back from the grave, if he didn't actually come back in the flesh, then we're still in our sins. And let's just think about this for a second, friends. Everything hinges on that. If Jesus didn't actually come back, then the Bible says that we are, that we are, we are still in our sins and we are to be pitied among all men. If you're not a Christian yet, I want you to know that as Christians, we are, putting, we are not hedging this. We're not trying to you know, kind of play our bets here. We are putting everything, everything depends on whether or not Jesus actually came back from the dead. Because if you come back from the dead, if you defeat the greatest foe, which is death, then that is proof that you are God. And if you can do that, there's nothing you cannot do. And so if Jesus did not rise from the dead in the flesh, then what we're doing here is foolishness and we should all go home and take a nap. And the, the, Bible, is, the Bible doesn't hedge its bets. And so the resurrection is this culminating work of Christ where the glory of God is most clearly seen in his defeat of death and sin and all of its consequences. And then... Finally, we see Jesus' work in the Old Testament where he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he is a risen, victorious Jesus, where he is exalted in power and authority. Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, talks about Jesus uh, interceding for us. And Hebrews speaks about how he daily makes intercession for us. And so we, have a, we serve a risen king. And the Bible presents not just a, a sort of... Uh, it's kind of like the European soccer player Jesus. You know, he's got nice olive skin, and he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail, and he's got nice blue eyes, which I don't know many Jewish people that have blue eyes. But anyway, he's real soft and gentle and sort of looks like an HGTV uh, host, you know, one of those shows, right? He's one of those guys. He'd wear pearl snaps and nice designer jeans, and he's just, just kind, right? And Jesus is kind. He's kind. He defines kindness. But if we focus too much on just the sort of kind Jesus, we miss a major thrust of the New Testament, which is the exalted, reigning, powerful Jesus, the warrior Jesus. And so Jesus is, has ascended at the right hand of the Father, where he is King of kings and Lord of lords. All right, the second sort of hanger that we're going to hang everything on on the New Testament as we look at it today is the church. The church, that's, we just talked about Jesus, the Christ of the New Testament, Secondly, this new covenant people of God, which is the church. It's beginning and growth. Let me read in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we see the, the beginning of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, which is right after uh, Romans. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has died. He's been buried. He's resurrected. He's ascended um, right before Romans. 
And in, in Acts chapter 2, we see this day of Pentecost where God pours out His Spirit on His church and He fills these early believers with His Spirit and with His power and the church is, is begun there in that upper room and then it begins to spread all throughout the world, the Roman Empire. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we see this picture of the beginning early church and its growth. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see this, this beautiful picture of this community, this New Testament community forming. And there's something I want you to see there is that there's this, there's this sense that the Word of God and the Spirit of God work together to form this New Testament people, right? So remember what it says there is that they came together and they, they started to think about and devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are the 12 followers of Jesus, and then they become the authors of the New Testament letters. And so these people, even early on here, in the first few months of the church, are, are, are starting to think about the Word of God, this Word that will become the New Testament Bible, and they're, they're devoting themselves to doctrine and word. But then we see the Holy Spirit is alive and active and doing miraculous things and, and knitting them together. And sometimes churches kind of err on one or the other, right? So we've got people that, we've got churches that care deeply about the word of God and doctrine, and maybe they have things right, but they're just lifeless and they're curmudgeons and they're just sort of cranky and, and, and all they want to do is break out Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and just kind of beat people over the head with right doctrine. Listen, I, I love that mentality. I, I, kinda, I, have a, I have a real bent that way, but, but all just kind of word and doctrine without stirring our affections and, and love for God, which the Holy Spirit breathes life into us, then becomes kind of rigid and dry, right? But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of people that all they want to do is just kind of sing all day long and, and, and have prayer streamers. And, and sooner or later, you know, somebody's got a tambourine in the audience and it just goes all over the place. And then they define a good service as, oh, that was so good. We didn't even have to have a sermon today. As if somehow that is like the apex of Christian experience. And so that becomes crazy and whack. And before you know it, you got preachers with suits on and jets asking you for all their money so that you can receive your blessing too. It's whack. Because it's not tethered to good doctrine. It's not tethered to the Word. And so the New Testament picture here that we see is this, this community of God that is birthed by God's Spirit that clings close and is the foundation of good doctrine and the Word of God drives then this life in the Spirit that becomes this New Testament church. Don't let anybody ever pit the Bible against the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit against the Bible. The Word and the Spirit work together to form this early church. And then we see this church on a mission. This church is a, a community that is on mission that doesn't just exist for themselves, but they now become God's people. In the Old Testament, it was the ethnic Jews. God was very concerned about fencing off and purifying His people. But even in the Old Testament, 
as God was gathering this Jewish people to himself, calling them out of the wilderness through Abraham, and then giving them a king and giving them his law, and sort of fencing them off, very concerned with their holiness. Even then, his concern was that through this Jewish people, that they would, in fact, that was his promise to Abraham, that through them, they would bless all the peoples of the earth. And now with Jesus, Jesus is coming and work on the cross. We see the gospel now expanding. The people of God are now no longer just the ethnic Jews, but they are all the peoples. Whoever will turn and trust in Jesus alone. And so we see this gospel, this good news, the people of God advancing through the book of Acts. And the mission of the church is simply to display the glory of God, to advance the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, in his uh, final words to the disciples in Matthew 28, gives them the great commission that they should go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing people and making followers of Jesus. And so the mission of the church continues. And then we see the New Testament letters. And let's, let's look now at these, these New Testament letters. We'll just go through them briefly, and then we'll end with our final thought about the consummation of all things. So the New Testament begins with the Gospels, very concerned with showing us the nature of Jesus, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His work on the cross. And now the New Testament letters are very concerned with showing us and giving us a picture of how this Gospel now looks in the life of the real church. It interprets for us Jesus' life and brings out the implications for the church then and for us now. And so in Acts, we see this advance of the gospel from these early Jewish believers to all the peoples of the earth. In Romans, we see how God has been faithful to his promise. It's the largest letter by Paul, and it is very doctrinally thick. And Romans is, is just kind of the Magna Carta of of gospel doctrine where Paul is laying out the implications of what Jesus' death meant for the justification of God and vindication of His holiness and the justification of His people. First and Second Corinthians. First Corinthians, which we just spent half a year going through, is a, a letter to a whacked, troubled, carnal, selfish church. And so I commend you to to that series if you want to learn more about 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a sort of defense of his ministry where there's some people that are attacking whether or not he was truly an apostle. And Paul writes that second letter of Corinthians to defend himself. Galatians is Paul's clarification of the gospel. There were so many other false gospels poking up and rearing their head. And we see Paul get very defensive and uh, very harsh with the Galatians where he clarifies the gospel. Ephesians gives us a picture of God's new society, the church. A beautiful letter that I think, Lord willing, we will study after we get through Ruth. And it gives us this picture of how the gospel should hit a church and how they should be a sort of picture of the city set on a hill and become God's new society to an onlooking world. Philippians, one of the happiest letters in the New Testament. There's no error or angst by Paul. He's rejoicing. He's encouraging the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord even as he's in prison awaiting his judgment by the Roman Empire. We see Colossians is another one of Paul's beautiful letters that speaks about the supremacy of Christ against all these powers that exalt themselves against the glory of God. How appropriate is it for us as Christians in our age to have a letter that would remind us of the greatness and the supremacy of Christ when we have a world, when we have when we have principalities, when we have governments, when we have mindsets, when we have a culture that exalts itself against God and Christ, 
to remember that. Colossians is a great letter for that. First and Second Thessalonians is a letter that is uh, particularly concerned by Paul with kind of kicking Christians in the rear. Uh, they were very, uh, they, were, they were in one sense doing a good thing by uh, thinking about the second return of Jesus, which is something that we should do and which we often neglect. But this was kind of causing a sort of negligence in them. And so he kind of kicks them in the rear and says, yes, Jesus is coming back, but in the meantime, get a job and start working. And so that's first and second Thessalonians. In first and second Timothy is a letter to a young pastor. First and second Timothy and Titus are Paul's pastoral epistles. And he writes to this young man, Timothy, and then to another man, Titus, to encourage them in pastoral ministry, to tell them the things that are important, that they should preach the word and not silliness, that they shouldn't focus their messages on people, but they should focus their messages on God and his gospel. And then Philemon is a letter that Paul writes to a slave owner about how he should receive back this slave who ran away that was now became one of Paul's ministry associates while he was in prison. And now Paul, because he wants to force reconciliation sends this freed slave back to the slave owner that he ran away from so that the gospel of grace, which should do more than just secure our eternal destiny, but which should transform our horizontal relationships, should be lived out between this former slave owner brother and this freed slave so that God would get the glory even through the horizontal relationship of these two people who have been infected with the gospel. One chapter, just a few verses, you will be thoroughly encouraged. In fact, if you're completely bored with the rest of the sermon, you can even read Philemon in the next two minutes. I would ask maybe that you hold off and wait till the end of the afternoon, but that's a beautiful gospel dripping letter, Philemon. Then those are Paul's letters, Romans through Philemon. And then we get to the book of Hebrews, which we're not sure about who wrote Hebrews, but very likely it came through one of Paul's ministry associates. And this is a book written to Christians wavering and considering going back to the old covenant. And this beautiful letter of Hebrews is written to show them the supremacy of Jesus over this old covenant given by Moses. And, and it is uh, really the great link to the Old Testament. In fact, Hebrews and Leviticus, the Old Testament book about the sacrificial systems, are two great books to read together because it shows us how Jesus becomes the once and for all satisfactory sacrifice that the Old Testament demands. James is a book written by the half-brother of Jesus, and it, it shows us just how the gospel produces faith that is active and concerned for others. Martin Luther, by the way, the great reformer who was so concerned with clarifying the false doctrine of the Catholic Church that we could somehow be saved by works and stumbled upon uh, the book of Romans as he read it for himself and realized, oh my gosh, we're missing the gospel and he kicked off this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation. And he was so consumed with how we are justified by grace and not works that he actually wanted James to be taken out of the New Testament because he didn't want anybody thinking that, that things that you do can somehow make you right with God. Well, Luther, in his fervor for the reestablishment of that beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, I don't think quite realized that what James is, is, is concerned with is not that we're saved by our works, but that once you have been saved by faith alone, the then necessary consequence of true Christianity is a heart that wants to treat people like Jesus treated them. And that's what James is all about. First and second Peter are written by the apostle Peter, written to Christians who are undergoing trials. This but if you have had any time in like the health and wealth gospel, or maybe you watch too, too much TBN, or you're kind of caught up in that prosperity garbage, read First and Second Peter. This, will, this is like 
detox for the American Christian who's been wrapped up in the false prosperity gospel. It tells us that Jesus went through suffering. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we should expect suffering. First Peter chapter 4 says, don't be surprised when this, this trial comes upon you because if you're his people and you want to be like him, you can expect suffering in this life. That's what First and Second Peter are about. And First, Second, Third, and John are just beautiful short letters written to encourage Christians to love one another and be faithful. By the way, if any of you are, 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 are struggling with a, a sort of sense of whether or not you are truly born again, that's a good question to wrestle with occasionally. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 13, I think it is, test yourself lest you be in the faith. That's a good question to ask, right? But 1 John is a particularly beautiful, encouraging letter meant to give us assurance. If you're just struggling with your state and where you are before the Lord, talk to a, a believer, uh, talk to a Christian friend. Come talk to one of the pastors and read 1 John as, as just a sort of salve for the soul, just a real encouragement. Jude is a letter, short little warning right before Revelation, written by a half-brother of Jesus, warning against false teachers. And then, of course, re- of course Revelation, written by the apostle John is this beautiful picture, sort of snapshots of the consummation of all things when Jesus comes again. And so these New Testament letters, all 27 of them, are written either by uh, one of Jesus' apostles or through the hands of one of their ministry associates. And that's why these letters actually made it into the New Testament, because they come with the authority of the apostles. And so that now gets us to the final point, which is the consummation of all things. The New Testament is concerned with showing us the end for which all things were created, the full and final consuming glory of God that we end the New Testament with, which serves as a sort of magnet that should call his people to long for. First thing that I want you to see, we could spend, again, so much time in this, but there's this already not yet aspect to the New Testament to the book of Revelation, to this hope that Christian, Christians should have. In one sense, Jesus' kingdom has come. That's what he says in Mark chapter 1, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that we should repent and believe. And Jesus has won the victory over sin and death on the cross. But in another sense, Revelation gives us a picture of what will come in the future and sort of leaves us in this time we are now with this tension that Jesus has already won, but his victory has not fully been completely consummated. And so we are in this in-between age where the kingdom is not fully consummated, but it has come. And friends, that explains even our own personal lives, that we are Christians, that we have been saved, if we have trusted in Jesus, that we are bought with a price, that we have been made new, that we are born again, but yet we still struggle with sin because we are in this sort of in-between time when Jesus' kingdom is established and when Jesus' kingdom is finally and fully consummated. The Bible calls these the last days, and it's the last days not just because it's the 20th century. It's the last days because it's between when Jesus came the first time and when Jesus came the second time. I mean, the New Testament Bible writers called their days the last days. And we're in this sort of in-between period of tension that we live in this already but not yet state when we know we are saved but we still struggle with sin. 
when we know Jesus is king, but yet in his providence, God still allows evil to have some, some leash here on this earth. Friends, we can ask, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just do it all right now? Just get rid of my sin and get rid of all the evil and get rid of everything that is against him. Well, friends, in God's wise providence, it seems that he has allowed even time just to go on out of kindness and mercy so that more would come to know him. And I also believe that there's this time, there's this great patience from God in between his establishing of the kingdom of God and the full consummation of the kingdom of God. And for some reason, which we cannot understand completely, God has allowed even this time to progress this way because he has deemed it to be more self-glorifying for this time to stretch on like it is. And friends, that gets us to the last point there, B and C, that we have this hope in the full and final consummation of all things. The New Testament leaves us with this great hope in Revelation chapter 21. Let me just read this. This is, this is what... This is, what, this is the magnet of the glory of God that just should pull the heart of every believer in Jesus forward through the trials and brokenness of this life that we still must navigate through. It says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, that is, that is our great hope on that day when God will, will make everything everything finally and fully right and every obstacle, every sin, every imperfection that hinders us now from fully and finally realizing and enjoying the glory of God will be gone and God will dwell with us and we will be his people. We are his people. We will be finally and fully his people and every obstacle to the most satisfying thing that is, which is God himself in all of his glory will be removed and every moment of shame, every twinge of embarrassment, every feeling of condemnation, every weakness in the flesh, every bone that breaks, every, every organ that gets cancer, every aspect of our failing lives will finally and fully be washed away and the glory, the goodness, the beauty, the satisfaction that is God himself will finally and fully be realized by his people, which are those that have turned from trusting in themselves and trusted in Jesus. Friend, that hope, that consummation of all things, that glory of God is the theme of the end of the New Testament. It's the theme of the beginning of the New Testament. It's the theme of the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, Jonathan Edwards says, it is the end for which the world is created that finally and fully his people would be able to enjoy him forever and behold the glory and greatness of God. 
two summary thoughts and we'll be done and we'll receive communion together. The Bible is about God's plan to glorify himself by redeeming his people through Jesus. The Bible is not about you or me and how we can be better people and live more functional lives or be better corporate leaders or control our anger or have more fulfilling marriages or raise kids that don't hang out at the mall all day or you know, invest our money so that we will gain favor. Don't, make no mistake about it, friends. The Bible does lay out for us how we should live, but it lays out for us how we should live in response to the mercy of God on the cross so that we might be able to make much of him and give glory to his name through faith in Jesus. The, glory, the, the Bible is about God and his glory, not about us. And if you approach it with a man-centered sort of functional look, that this is, I'm going to come to the Bible so that I can get this out of it, you will ultimately be disappointed. The Bible is about God and his plan to glorify himself by redeeming his people through Jesus. Finally, second thought is that we should repent and believe the gospel and worship God. We should repent, which means to turn from trusting ourselves and turn in faith towards Jesus and believe afresh the gospel and worship God. You say, well, I'm a Christian, but I've already done that. I've already repented. Well, I referred to Martin Luther earlier, the beginner of the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, I believe it was, when he pinned his 95 thesis, his statement of critique of the Roman Catholic Church, the chapel door of Wittenberg, his first statement was that not just the beginning of the Christian life, but the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. And then his third statement of those 95 theses is that that repentance should produce fruit in the Christian life fruit of worship, fruit of love, fruit of Christ-likeness. And so my call for repentance here is for me and for you if you're a believer in Jesus already. But as we look at the grand redemptive story plan of the Bible that shows God's glory, this should cause us to, again, turn away from ourselves and turn and believe to Jesus in Jesus and what God has done in the cross through him to bring us into fellowship with him so that we can give him glory. And it should cause us to believe in it afresh and freshly apply it to areas of our lives where we forget the gospel. It should cause us to worship him. And any of my friends that may be in this room who have not yet trusted in Jesus, friends, I can't, I can't manipulate, manipulate you into this. I can't explain it enough. I am a very feeble explainer of the good news of God. I'm just telling you right now, I'm relying solely on God's goodness and mercy to show you that you have been relying on yourself. And I'm just, just praying that God would show you that you need to trust in him and not in yourself. Maybe you came into this room and you thought you were a Christian. And maybe by God's kind grace, he has shown you that you probably actually aren't. Or maybe you came into this room and you, you, you knew that you weren't a Christian and you're investigating the message of Christianity. Well, friends, just because I, I love you, I, I need to tell you that you must turn from trust in yourself and you must turn and trust towards Jesus. The message of the Bible is not to be better. It's to look to the only one 
who is good, which is Jesus. And here's even the kind, really the sort of subtle news that doesn't always jump off the page, but really undergirds this message of the gospel, is that God requires of you faith in Jesus. He requires for you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And here's, here's really the, the spectacular good news of the Bible, is that even the thing that he requires of you is a gift. He gives it to you. The very thing that he commands, he gives. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm not asking you to look within yourself for some sort of religious effort. You hear this? You hear the gospel? Does it produce futility in you? Do you feel at your wit's end, friend? Turn and trust in Jesus. Believe in him right now. Believe in him. Say, Jesus, I trust in what you did on the cross in your death, burial, and resurrection. This is the only thing that will stand between me and God and satisfy his holiness. I turn away from trusting in myself and I trust in what you did for me that will make me right with you. Friends, if you do that even now, just in your mind, just believe that right now. The fact that you can even believe that is evidence that God is giving you the heart to believe it. Do you see that? Do it even now, even now, right now. Don't wait for a prayer to recite. Do it right now. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him. Even now. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare now to come to the table where we remember what Jesus has done, for all who would repent and believe, I pray that every person in this room would be among that number. For Christians, I pray, Lord, that you would stir again afresh in our hearts the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of your grace through what Jesus has done for us. I pray that it wouldn't just stop there for the Christian, that it would would open us up to how you have given us this new life in Christ through our faith in him to make much of you, to enjoy you forever, as the old confession says, to glorify God, which is the end for which all things are created. It's the reason you made us, to bring you glory. But I pray for my Christian friends that we would do that afresh today as we take this bread and juice, that it would stir our hearts for that work of Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray for my friends that are in this room today who came in not believing. I do pray, Lord, that you would show them, that you would give them the gift of repentance and the gift of faith so they can turn away from themselves and turn in saving faith towards Jesus so that their lives can fully and finally realize their purpose, which is to make much of you through glorying in your cross. Help us now to think these things. Help us to come to the table with a beautiful sense of gravity and gladness, examining our lives in light of the cross, but also having this unspeakable joy because of what you have done for us. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name.